discussion with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my soundcloud page and free podcast on itunes again the studio number 310-441-0555 before i uh, begin with the summary of the book from this past week i wanted to uh, announce the book for this week and it's with a heavy heart that i have to announce this one um it has a little bit of a story to it. So the book of the week, first I'll give the name, the title is Me, Myself, and My Brainstem Tumor by Bayon Azizi. Me, Myself, and My Brainstem Tumor, Memoirs of a Pediatric Brain Cancer Survivor by Bayon Azizi. Um, the reason why I say it's with a heavy heart that I announce that this is the book of the week is that I just learned that the author, Bayon Azizi, passed away last week. Um, and with that, I guess I can share a, a story about that uh, that's a little bit hard for me to share because I'm not feeling so good about it, but I wanted to share it with all of you. Um, but I did receive a message from Bayon last fall um, and telling me that he had listened to the show, but that he also had written this book he thought I might be interested in. And I wrote him a message back saying, that that's wonderful. How can I learn more about it or hear more about it. And then he had sent me a message, but uh, I never saw that message or I never opened that message. Um, I'd like to say I get many messages and that's why, but really I could have uh, checked the message and looked into it more. And then even to add to that, around that same time, um, a very kind listener to the show, Vahideh, sent me this his book, um, so really, in a way, a lot of signs were pointing to me uh, getting in contact with him and, and, and getting involved with this book. And I regret that I did not do that, especially now. Uh, it, it's hard for me even to talk about it. And I was thought I could get tearful talking about it. Maybe I will when I talk about the book next week, but trying to contain that right now. Um, but when I was on Facebook last week and saw that he had passed, I was heartbroken and sad and and did have these feelings of guilt also that I uh, did not reach out to him and didn't get the opportunity to connect with him more. Um, but of course, I can't change that past that I don't feel so good about, but I did want to make his book the book of the week for this week. Um, Me, myself, and my brainstem tumor by Bayon Azizi. And I am looking forward to reading his story and sharing it with you next week, and I hope you'll join me in reading the book as well. Um, so that's the book for this week. But I'll try to change gears to the book from this past week that I'll talk about now, um, and that is The Developmental Science 
of Early Childhood by Claudia M. Gold. The Developmental Science of Early Childhood, Clinical Applications of Infant Mental Health Concepts from Infancy Through Adolescence. And this was a very, uh, I'm very happy I read this book. It was very informative and I really learned a lot. Um, And to be honest, when I looked at the the title, I was already excited and I thought inside the book was going to be a bunch of techniques and specific recommendations about do's and don'ts and exactly how to do things with uh, babies and and kids. And there was some of that. But as I quickly learned, when I saw the approach of infant mental health that Dr. Gold describes in the book, you see that it's a lot less about specific techniques and um, advice that is given. And the theme is much more about listening and understanding the whole family and rather than focusing on specific behaviors or symptoms focusing on the relationships and even when you're treating uh, an issue or dealing with an issue all throughout the book you see this emphasis that you're not treating the mother or the baby you're treating the relationship and you see the value in that in and what's described throughout the book so to begin with this concept of infant mental health she shares Uh, the four components of this paradigm. And she says the first one is that it's relational. So as I was just mentioning, the focus is on relationships and how these can be healing, uh, but also hurting or can cause harmful effects. But the good news is there is healing that could be done in the relationships. So there's a focus on the relationships rather than on specific symptoms or on specifically focusing on a sick child or a problem child but having a more, in a way, global or holistic approach to the family. Second, it's developmental, uh, meaning that you always want to understand the developmental state or um, the normal development of the child and where the child is. And so it's going to be different based on how old the child you're dealing with is, but always having that in mind that we have to have that developmental mindset uh, in play. The third is that it's multidisciplinary, so it's not just about a pediatrician or just about a therapist or a psychiatrist, but that, uh, as, as she puts it, encompasses research, clinical work, public policy, and it's a whole bunch of things that can be involved. And even treatment can involve lots of things, not just therapy and medication, but occupational therapy, getting involved in different activities, and a whole host of other things. And lastly, it's reflective, which is very important because um, a, a key idea that you see in this is about listening, um, but also just trying to understand more the why rather than the what. And that's something that I'll talk about. So we're trying to look at the meaning of the behavior, not just what's going on, which is very important. So that's the concept of infant mental health. And that's really the paradigm where this whole book um, comes from or what it's really focused on. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting things themes that come up throughout the book. One that I thought was interesting is she talks a lot about the work of Donald Winnicott, who was, I think he's also a pediatrician or he's a psychiatrist and an analyst who wrote many things that are very relevant to what she talks about in this book, some of his concepts that are very important. For example, something that he talked about is how the caregiver can try to create what he calls a holding environment for the child. 
And this is a safe and secure relationship where difficult feelings will be accepted, contained, and understood. And I like that idea, the holding environment. It's almost like this container. But as a caregiver, especially when the baby is so young, you are trying to uh, hold their intense feelings. The baby feels pain, feels discomfort, and starts crying. And then you come in as the caregiver, and you don't try to just eliminate the feelings or just make them disappear, but you hold them with the child. You make them more manageable. And even as they get older, you start to reflect them to them so they understand what they're feeling. And this is a very important process. Start to say, oh, you're... And you pay, moms almost do this naturally you'll see they say oh you're cold or you must be hungry or you need a changing and you talk to them about how they're feeling what they're feeling what's going on and um, this is is very important and a very important component of that and also another concept that he's very well known for is that of the good enough mother and this can be a, a very comforting concept for parents to learn of course it's good enough mother but it can apply to either parent but the good enough mother it means in one general way we can look at it is that you don't have to be perfect and you can't be perfect at taking care of your infant and baby, but you don't need to be. They actually need you just to be good enough because, first of all, it's not possible, but second of all, as he puts it, these the small interruptions are by trying to do your best, you're sometimes going to make mistakes in understanding what your child wants and what your child needs. And if these aren't too big and aren't too often, these actually small mismatches or misattunements, if we want to call them that, will actually help the child develop because they over time start to learn how to self-soothe and to take care of themselves. So the child doesn't need you to be perfect and actually benefits from some of these mismatches, and that's okay as long as you're uh, with your child and even when there's these mismatches, you try to then take care of them and give them what they need. So that's a very comforting concept for parents to learn because one uh, issue that parents constantly are dealing with, especially in today's day and age where you can read a thousand articles and parents are telling each other, you have to do this or you should never do this or you need to do this. um, There's lots of feelings of guilt and shame that parents feel, especially when their kid is having some kind of symptoms that they don't know how to explain or that other parents aren't having, very often parents can feel that they are totally to blame, that I'm a bad mom or I'm a bad dad, I don't know what I'm doing, and that's why my kid is crying all night or is colicky or whatever else they might be going through. They can feel this strong blame on them. And so it can be good to sometimes realize, look, you're going to get things wrong, and not only is that okay, but your child needs that to a certain degree. So The concept that I thought was interesting in seeing Dr. Gold, and she shares many vignettes, is you see that the parents will come in, as they often do, seeking specific advice to deal with a specific problem and about a specific child. Usually we talk about an identified patient or what we might call the problem child. And that child comes in and parents say, okay, this is a problem. And they expect the doctor is going to say, here's the three steps you're going to do to solve this problem. But you see that her approach is very different from that. It's much less about specific advice, but more about trying to understand why things are happening the way they are. Why is it that your child is acting in this way or this behavior is happening? And let's look at the whole family. And even as she gets into in later parts of the book, multi-generational factors that could be at play and not just genetic ones. So it's very interesting to see her approach uh, as a, a pediatrician 
that it's not about just the symptoms and treatment or finding the right medication immediately. It's much more about giving that space to listen to the parents to try to understand what's going on. And as she talks about throughout the book, the way as a clinician you work with the parents is to actually model for them the way they would best act with their child, meaning that you listen to them, you try to understand the why, you're non-judgmental, you're reflecting with them, you're containing if they're having feelings that are really strong, you can be there with them, and you want them to do that with their kids. Stay with their kids. Reflect on what their kids are doing. A very key concept she brings up a lot is this idea of mentalization and this ability to try to think about and understand what your child is feeling and doing. So rather than just thinking, why is she making a mess again? Oh, she's so difficult or she's so defiant. Trying to understand what your child is actually communicating to you. So trying to understand that why is a very important part of being a good parent, of doing the best you can to make sure your child feels understood. And when you give them that feeling that you actually care about what they are doing and what they're feeling and trying to understand that, that itself can be a, a huge shift. So she talks about the four components of promoting this, this idea of mentalization. So the first one is a stance of curiosity. And so this is what I was talking about, the why. Rather than just looking at a behavior and be like, oh, what is that? Okay, she keeps doing this or he keeps doing that and I don't like it. Try to understand the why. You know, always think there's a reason why he or she is doing that. There has to be something about it. I'm not just going to think it's because she's being difficult. And actually, as she explains, sometimes you realize your child isn't being difficult, but is actually helpless. They're acting out because they have no other way to communicate to you something they're feeling or experiencing, or they can't hold on to the feelings that they have and it's coming out in that way. And that could be very important. The second is empathy. So trying to understand and be connected to how your child is feeling and making that important and make sure they know that's important. The third one is limit setting. So this concept, although it seems like it's all about listening and being non-judgmental, doesn't mean you don't set limits. And sometimes you especially have to set limits so your, your child knows there is a holding space. There is going to be containment. It's not just going to be whatever happens, happens kind of a thing. And especially when feelings get out of control, you're going to be there to help contain them. And the fourth one, very importantly, is self-regulation. That parents have to recognize that the their behaviors of their child can have huge impacts on them. So when the child's having a meltdown, of course, the parent is going through a lot emotionally too. And recognizing that and realizing that you as a parent have to take care of yourself and manage your own reactions to your child's behavior, or else you're going to, in a way, act out back at them. And there's going to be this mutual dysregulation rather than regulating one another. So the fourth one is self-regulation, something always we're telling parents to make sure you take care of yourself so you can best take care of your kids and best take care of that relationship. Now, there's so much um, in this book that I wanted to talk about in another segment, so that's what I'm going to go ahead and do. So after the break, I'll continue talking about the developmental science of early childhood by Dr. Claudia Gold. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Before the break, I was talking about the book, The Developmental Science of Early Childhood by Dr. Claudia M. Gold. And I mentioned the emphasis on trying to understand the why of your child's behavior, your baby's behavior, uh, not just the what. And this really is so important. And before continuing about the book, I'll share a personal example that really clearly illustrates this point to me that I had um, a few years ago. I was tutoring this very sweet, cute young girl named Saraya. She was five years old at the time. And when I would come to tutor her, she would sometimes have a lot of what we might call acting out behavior. She would be defiant. She would um, do some things that were a little bit disruptive to our tutoring or she wouldn't focus or she would bite the back of her pencil eraser, just things that were in a way acting out what we might consider, oh, this is bad behavior. And this became more extreme at one point where I was tutoring her and I was trying to redirect her to get back to the assignment we were working on together. And she bit my arm pretty hard to the point where it left a mark that lasted a day or two. Um, I was a little bit shocked by this. I didn't expect that. And um, so one reaction could be, this is bad behavior. This is wrong. This is aggression. We should punish her or we have to do something about it and or diagnose her with something and try to figure out what the problem is. Fortunately, I, I would see her once a week and I thought, you know what, she's probably angry about something, that there seems to be some kind of aggression. So let me try to understand the why. And so I said, if she, I see her getting that way again, um, I'll, I'll try to see if I can ask her. So sure enough, either the next week or the week after, I felt her getting aggressive again. And she didn't bite me, but I think she grabbed my arm or she did something that was, in a way, expressing some aggression. And I, I asked her, I said, Saraya, are you mad at me? And she nodded her head, yes. And I said, why? And she said, because you leave. And so I, I still get chills when I tell that story, when I realize her anger towards me wasn't this defiant thing or this aggressive or mean thing it actually was because she would get so sad that i was would go and that it would make her sad and so she would it was angry at me because of that and so she that's why she bit me or got aggressive and so i let her know i, I always miss you too and i get sad when our our time ends but i'm happy that i know i'll come back the next week and i get to see you and we get to to, to play and, and do our work together so the why there was so important and actually allowed for me and her to connect in a way and for me to understand her far better than if I just tried to say, okay, what's a way to make her not bite me anymore or focus just on that that behavior or what even might be called a symptom um, if we're talking about a medical model. And so, but when I understood the why, I saw there was nothing mean or bad about what she was doing she was just sad about something and it made her feel these feelings that she wasn't sure how to handle and this is how it came out and so she shared that with me now the thing is oftentimes our children are too young to verbalize it or they might not really understand the why so you don't always get the benefit of the doubt that I got or the benefit I had that I could ask her and she actually knew and verbalized it to me oftentimes especially when you're dealing with an infant or a a toddler or a baby, they can't verbalize it or they might not be aware of that. So it's up to the parent to really reflect and try to understand 
what's going on here? Why is my child acting in this way? And always think that your child is communicating something to you through that behavior. Consider their behavior communication, not just actions that are something you need to deal with. That's your baby talking to you. That's your even child talking to you. They're trying to let you know something. So to me, that was very interesting seeing this focus on the why of the behavior and that we have to try to understand it. And just hearing a behavior in isolation or a symptom in isolation or even a psychological diagnosis in isolation doesn't give us the full story. And that's very important. So she goes into a lot of different aspects of infant mental health and parenting questions that parents might have that I thought um, was very interesting. Another interesting one is looking at the idea of when your child is having a tantrum or we might call a meltdown and what we should do. And it's very difficult to handle those situations. But one thing she points out that's very important is that when your child is acting out or having that kind of tantrum, their emotional centers of their brain are activated and the parts that are going to be more rational are in a way offline, as she puts it. And so there's no hope in trying to connect to the child in a rational way or to try to figure something out in that moment. You need to help the child contain those feelings and calm down and talk later. And the same is true of adults too. And that's why when adults are having um, you know, a bad fight and they're yelling at each other, we say you need to stop and take a break because nothing productive comes out of that part of a conversation. You're both going to be emotional. You might say things you don't mean or harsh things to one another, and you're not really hearing each other. You're not able to, to listen and reflect on what's going on or to take in the points that you're trying to make to each other. So there is no point to try to have that conversation. So you need to take a break. And so the same thing is true about your kids. You have to be able to realize it's time to calm down and realize that you might be the one that's also getting to that point. And so she talks about how the goal is to try to shift parents from being conscious and present with their child, even when the child is acting out. And this is the tough part, because when your child is acting in a way the worst, the, the hardest to deal with, that's when you have to be the most giving and generous, as she puts it, the most available for them. And that can be very, very hard to deal with. Now, what's also interesting is she talks about the science looking at how relationships help to shape the development of the brain of your child. And that, uh, in a way, the relationship can help heal the child's brain or help make the brain become healthier, which is really remarkable because we think of relationships as nice or it's sweet or it feels good in that moment, but we don't realize it actually has lasting effects on the brain. Or we can also put it in another way, not having healthy relationships or having damaging relationships as an infant and a baby can have lasting effects on the brain um, as well. So for example, she talks about how chronic stress causes the parts of the brain responsible for emotion regulation to shrink and the parts responsible for fear to grow. The entire system is out of balance. So the parts that are supposed to help you be able to handle your feelings and handle your emotions and manage them, they shrink when you're exposed to chronic stress as a baby and the parts that are responsible for things like fear grow. So you become out of balance. We can see that if you have a brain system that the fear center can get activated very easily and very strongly, and the part that's supposed to do the emotion regulation is not very activated or not very strong, that's going to mean the person's going to be 
in a bad state or a bad emotional state. So it's so important for us to realize the value of creating the good relationship with the child from a very young age. It's not something that would just be nice. If you can do it, recognize that it actually has huge benefits. And the dynamic between the baby and we'll say mother because they that tends to be the primary caregiver, but of course it can be anyone. But the connection they have is kind of like a dance that she talks about, that it's not just a one-way type of a thing. It's the way that they interact, which is so important. And so the baby and the mom are going to be interacting, and it's important for the mom to try to be in tune with the baby. Um, so something called the mutual regulation model. Mother and baby are in a kind of dance of mutual regulation. The baby smiles, and the mom smiles in excitement too, and this makes the baby feel good, and then she responds in a way, and the mom responds, and they go back and forth in this really nice way when they are in tune. Now, when they are not in tune, this is when we have problems. Um, and that's where we can lead to mutual dysregulation. So the baby is happy, but the mom doesn't react. That makes the baby get upset. And now the mom gets upset and then it can just spiral in a downward way. Now, what's interesting is they point out how healthy mother-baby pairs have mismatches or like they're not really on the same page up to 70% of the time. So these are the healthy mother-baby uh, pairs. However, the difference is that these mismatches or disruptions are recognized and repaired. So the mother is in tune enough to see that there's been a mismatch or that she's not quite with her child and then does what she can to repair that mismatch. So again, it's not about being perfect. Here we see that 70% of the time you might get it wrong. But if you're available to try to repair things, that's when you can um, make things better or make it so you actually help the baby grow. And that is very important. Um, she also talks about some things that parents need to be aware of for themselves, things that they might experience. So for example, something I thought was really incredible, um, looking at things like miscarriages or lost pregnancies, something that is a very delicate topic, very intense, but sometimes can be overlooked. People think, well, um, it's not that big of a deal. The baby was never you know, they had no relationship with the baby, the baby wasn't born, or especially people will even say, if, um, you know, they've had a new baby, well, that replaces that old loss. There is no loss to, to worry about. But she cites a, a study that found that depression and anxiety from miscarriages can last for almost three years, even after the birth of a healthy baby. So that shows us how significant this loss can be. And that we have to take that seriously. And she even talks about how um, we have to be aware of this. And as clinicians, to, to seek out mothers who have gone through something like this and realize the significance it can have. And related to that, she also talks about how sometimes parents, because they haven't acknowledged previous losses, whether it's the loss of a baby, a miscarriage, lost pregnancy, or maybe someone else, that they have lost, if they have not actually dealt with this, they sometimes, in a way to try to protect themselves, they might not allow themselves to fully connect with the baby or they'll block feelings of love towards this child. So sometimes you'll have a mother come in and they'll say, you know, I'm having a hard time connecting with this baby. I've had another baby, but this one I can't connect to and it can feel very strange and lots of feelings can come up for the mom as in maybe I'm a bad mom or maybe something's wrong with this baby or something's going on why can't I connect with him 
or her. And she shares a story where you can see, and I don't remember the exact vignette actually, but there's lots of cases with similar types of outcomes or descriptions. But basically, imagine if they named the son after the mom's brother who died. And unconsciously or out of the the baby's, the, the mom's awareness, she has made this connection and now has this feeling of that this child is more vulnerable or something can happen to this child. And so I have to be more careful or I'm afraid to get connected to him because what if something happens to, to him and I want to protect myself from that. So when she shares these stories and she gets really deep with the parents to look at the underlying issues, their own issues and what's going on, you see how important it is to not just focus on specific behaviors and get caught up on those symptoms and a diagnosis and then focusing just on treatment, but looking at the whole picture and even looking back generations if you have to, because that's sometimes where some of the issues lie. And she shows time and time again how where you improve the relationships in the family, you see that this has a huge impact on the behaviors that they were coming in with, even if you weren't directly addressing those behaviors. So I really enjoyed that this book because of that, this idea that we have to look at the whole picture and that as clinicians, we have to listen more and not just focus on giving advice, but also especially in that same line, the parents have to focus on listening to their child, both with their ears, but with their eyes and just looking at what their child is trying to tell them. Don't just focus on the what that is going on, focus on the why, trying to understand why your child is doing what they're doing. So I thought that was really interesting. And so this book, in a way, was written for clinicians based on how I understood it and things that she says. But I think that parents would also benefit from reading this book. So if you are a parent, and it doesn't matter if your kids aren't infants anymore, because a lot of what is talked about applies to any parents, um, or if you're thinking about having kids, I'd highly recommend this book, The Developmental Science of Early Childhood by Claudia M. Gold. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was discussing the book, The Developmental Science of Early Childhood, and this emphasis on listening to your child and trying to understand the why and made me want to talk about one aspect of working with children and with parents, but also that parents have to deal with a lot that relates to this idea of listening to the child. And that is in setting limits or making rules. So parents will, you know, what they'll have lots of fights with kids over bedtime or things like how many hours or how much video games they can play or different things that they can fight about trying to set these limits and they might come into therapy and say, well, what's the the right amount? What should we do? So to begin with, with most of these types of things, there isn't a right amount. For example, bedtime, yeah, there's going to be a range based on your child's age and how many hours of sleep they're going to need that we want to make sure we honor that we are aware of. But specifically, if eight is better than 815, or if that's going to make that much of a difference, to me is less important than the effect the rule has on the child and especially the relationship between the child and the parents. That's going to be more important. So rarely is it going to be that uh, we're going to find that 8 p.m. is the universal best bedtime for a four-year-old. So no matter what, your four-year-old has to be asleep at eight. 
but more it's about finding the balance where the child feels heard and understood and it doesn't become a battle. And that's what a lot of parents end up creating is constant battles about everything. Bedtime, how many snacks or what's for snack or what, what's, how much TV, brushing their teeth, everything becomes a battle and a fight. And the thing is, because of their authority, parents think, well, I can win more of these battles. So they think it works in a way. So the problem is, first of all, you might not win all the battles or you might not win the war, as they say. But even worse, the problem is you've created a war and you're in a constant state of battling and fighting over everything. And this doesn't work. It might make one thing work in the moment by using your authority. But as I mentioned last week, we have to change this conception of work and not just focus on the short term in the moment, but realize we have to think of the bigger picture and the relationship we have with our kids and the things we're teaching them in the process. So when it comes to setting some kind of limit, and let's just talk about bedtime, for example, what you want to do is to have your child engaged in the process, even from a young age. And when I say engaged, then parents might think I'm going to the other extreme and saying your child picks their bedtime. And I'm not suggesting that because you might ask your kid and they say midnight or you know, a five-year-old might say 10 p.m., 11 p.m., something that's way too late based on how much sleep they need. So you don't just let them dictate it, but you want them to be a part of the process. So you ask them or you say, okay, we wanted to talk about bedtime and let's just figure this out together. And even if you write it down, that can be good when you're making these types of rules or boundaries. But you make sure your child feels heard and understood and that they are part of the process. And this does several things. First of all, you're giving your child this really good message that what you have to say and your input matters and is valued as and is important. So even a five-year-old is like, oh, my mom and dad care about what I have to say. And they're showing me that. You know, even that's why sometimes having the paper can make it seem more official and more that it's serious and you're taking with, okay, so you're suggesting this and you write down their suggestion. Make them feel important. Make them feel valued. Um, but also, you're much more likely to have your child be uh, uh, going along with the rule. They're less likely to challenge a rule if they helped create it themselves. So if you come and tell them bedtime's 8 p.m. no matter what, you better be asleep by 8 p.m., lights off, phone away, or whatever it is, maybe the child follows it, but there's a good chance they're also going to feel a battle with you and see how can they push that. Even they want to go to sleep, but because you've created a battle, they want to win. So if they can stay up till 8.15, they're going to try to do that, even if they're exhausted, and that's a problem. But if they feel like I am part of the reason I'm going to sleep at 8 p.m. or I've chosen this bedtime, I've selected this bedtime and come up with it with my parents, they're much more likely to follow that rule and to be happy about following it and feel good about that. There won't be much of a battle. So you can create a rule with them or create some kind of limit with them. And again, any age, this can work and you can make them feel good about the process. And that's something very, very important. And that can make a good impact on them and how they feel about their self-confidence and self-esteem. What I say matters, what I have to say my parents listen to, and I like that. So we want to make sure we don't make it a battle, but we make it a collaborative effort. And I highly recommend writing things like this down because that can be important. Coming up with the rules, the guidelines, what does it mean, and even if there's consequences. So what happens if you break the bedtime rule? Or what happens if you play video games more than we said you would? And then you go through that. And you might have to revisit it. 
Um, you make bedtime 8 p.m. and then you realize, oh, you know what? When you come home from piano practice, we saw that it was too hard to get everything done by 8. It was more like 8.30. So maybe you change the rule that on Thursdays when you have piano, bedtime is 8.30 and you work on it together. It's an ongoing process. It's not something that is set in stone and can't be changed. But you also want to work with your child in creating the rules and seeing how it makes sense. So rather than saying 8 p.m., you ask them, how much sleep do you think you need? So sometimes you have to work backwards. So they say, well, I think I need this much or that much. And then you could even talk about, remember last week when you went to sleep late, how did you feel? And they might tell you, oh, yeah, I was really tired. I didn't feel good. And then they say, oh, yeah, so maybe you need more sleep than you got that night. And so you look at the different things and you actually help them in decision making, too, to become aware of what things matter, what's important, how did they feel. So rather than saying you have to sleep at this time because I say so, you make them realize there's a reason why we're saying you should go to bed at a certain time. It makes sense. There's something good in that. Getting enough sleep is important. When you're tired the next day, you don't learn as well. You're going to be in more of a bad mood. And that doesn't feel good for you. So we want you to feel good. And so this is another key element that we want to keep in mind and why we want to shift from this idea of making everything a battle is that really deep down you and your kids in a way want the same things or most of it at least overlaps. You want your kid to get enough sleep, not just because you're a mean parent and you don't like them to have fun or to stay up. You want them to go to sleep at a good time so that they get enough rest, their brain and body's developing so they get enough rest for that. They feel good the next day. They can learn in class, all those good things that come with it. So remember, your intention isn't something against your child. It's something that your child deep down actually will want to. Your child wants to feel good and feel rested and all those things. So we're, we should be on the same page. And if we take away the battle, then that can change the whole process. So shifting this to something like playing video games, and this is something, it could be video games or it could be phones and screen time, but video games especially something you see a lot of parents and, and their kids dealing with, uh, when you try to make it something where you're convincing your kid it's bad to play video games, or you think you have to teach them that video games are bad and other things are better, and show them that you think that this is a bad thing for them and they should do something else with their time, you're creating a, a battle between you and them where they're going to try to fight back and you won't be able to have a meaningful conversation and dialogue. So I've seen this from things like marijuana to video games to other things where parents, they think they have to convince their kid that they are right and the thing that they're trying to do is bad. So I'm going to find articles on video games and how damaging they can be. And I'm going to email them to my son and then he's going to learn and stop playing. And then they find one study showing that it's good for hand-eye coordination or for something else and they send it back to you and you have this back and forth. And just like people from different political uh, ideologies having a debate, all that happens is most people just get mad at each other and if anything get more firmer in their own beliefs oftentimes when we have these types of debates and nothing happens and that's a problem. Not only is that a problem where it has this damaging effect on the relationship where it becomes you against them, another thing that you lose when you make it this battle is that you don't actually allow your child to have a meaningful conversation with you where they can express even things they may be worried about. So when it comes to, let's say, the video games, if they know that you're so anti-video game that you think it's all bad and that they play and it's not good and them playing is bad for them and all these horrible things, if the child actually themselves has an issue where they realize, you know what, maybe 
I am playing too much. Or last night I played too much and I was so tired the next day at school and that felt really bad. They're highly unlikely to come to you with this issue because they know it's just going to give you more ammunition to fire back at them to show them, see, I was right, you were wrong, and we were in this battle and now I'm winning. So the child won't even tell you that issue. Same thing that I notice with families where they tell a son or daughter that they shouldn't date someone or they can't date someone. And they then the person feels like they have to defend their relationship and defend their partner 100%. When you do that now, that person who's in the relationship, if they have concerns, they're not going to come tell you, you know what, I'm actually worried because he does this sometimes. Or I don't know if this is going to work out because of this reason. Because they know you're so anti that person that if they come, you're just going to jump on them and be judgmental and say, see, I told you so. I was right. You are wrong. So when we make things a battle, we lose many things, including the possibility or the likelihood of having a healthy dialogue and relationship or connection about the issue. Your child won't be able to tell you the concerns they have if they feel like you're just going to judge them or jump on them as soon as they tell you whatever it is that they're dealing with. So you want to make sure you leave that opening for them to have that conversation. And related to this idea of conversation and bringing it back to this theme of listening, parents oftentimes think that one of their jobs is to come up with the best lectures or pep talks to get their kids to realize something. So they'll have an issue like let's say, video games and studying more, and they'll give a 20-minute lecture talking about everything from their own experience in high school and college to someone else they knew and all sorts of different things to try to convince their kid that studying is good and we have to, to do that. Now, there could be times where your child will want to hear a story about your life or maybe sharing something will be important, but you should realize that overall, lecturing your kids is not what parents are supposed to do or one of your roles. Parents oftentimes think that that's what they're supposed to do or that they have to come up with the best talk to make sure they get their kid to realize something. But most of the time, and I've seen it happen in my office all the time, when the parent starts to lecture, the kid just checks out. They're not paying attention to what you're saying. So all these things that you think are so incredibly valuable, these gems that you think you're passing along to your child, they're not even going through their ears to come out the other. They're not even hearing what you're saying. So when you're having these conversations, pay attention to it being a conversation, a dialogue between two people rather than a monologue, one person just talking and the other one listening. There has to be a back and forth. And even you should think at the beginning, you want to make sure your child is speaking more than you. You want to make sure they're engaged in the conversation. If it's going just one way, don't think that you're really getting anywhere with that. Your child is just going to wait till you finish and then move on. But a dialogue means there's a back and forth. And in a dialogue, you show that curiosity. I want to know what you think. I want to know what you feel. I want to get your perspective. But when we come from it as this authoritarian parent who I know, and I have to share with you what I know because I know better than you, the child very often is going to become defensive or just shut down and not hear what you have to say. So going back to this theme of the book about listening we want to make sure as parents, we're making sure our children feel heard by us. If we're coming up with rules or boundaries, we want to make sure they feel like they're part of the process, that what they think and feel and what they want is very important. And we know that this will make them feel better about the process and also make them more likely to follow the rules and to be happy to follow the rules and even sometimes face the consequences. When they make the rules, they say, oh, you know what, I, 
I went past the time. So that means tonight I don't get this or whatever it is. They might get that it feels fair to them that that's happening. So we want to make sure they feel heard in that sense, but also we want to make sure they feel heard in the conversations we are having with them. If they become one-sided, if it's about just you talking and them listening, something is missing. We want to have dialogues, not monologues with our kids and make sure they feel that they are part of the process too. All right, we've reached the end of tonight. So I want to announce the book of the week again. It is Me, Myself, and My Brainstem Tumor by Bayon Azizi. Um, I'm I'm sure this the book is going to be even more meaningful and, and at times maybe even hard to read because I know he has just passed passed away last week. But I'm I'm happy to honor him and his life by reading the book about his life that he wrote himself. And I hope you'll join me in reading that book. And I'll talk about it next week, Monday night on the show. All right. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.